So I'm out here on Wellington Street standing directly in front of Center Block. It's just before lunchtime and it is very, very quiet out here. Um, the only people out here really close by are, are a couple of people shoveling at the main gates. Um, there are sometimes a few protesters still out here on and off, especially on the weekends, but nobody today. That's the Globe's Shannon Proudfoot. A year ago, that stretch of downtown Ottawa sounded very different. A lot has changed in 12 months. The leaders of the protests, including Tamara Leach, Chris Barber, and Pat King, are awaiting trial. So are the people involved in the armed blockade at Coots, Alberta. But are we any closer to understanding why so many people joined the protests in the first place? Shannon has been talking to some of them. Today, she'll tell us how they feel about it now and whether something similar could happen again. I'm Manika Raman-Wilms, and this is The Decibel from The Globe and Mail. Shannon, thank you so much for joining me. It's great to have you on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. So it's now been a year since the convoy rolled into Ottawa. And and to look back at this anniversary, Shannon, you talked to a couple of people who were there to protest. Tell me about them. Who are they and what are they like? Yeah, so I wanted to talk to sort of rank and file convoy participants, if you will, rather than the the leaders that we heard a lot from at the public inquiry. So uh, one of the people I talked to, his name is Lloyd Crow, and he's a farmer. He grows soybeans and wheat in Prince Edward County in Ontario, and he spent the whole three weeks here in Ottawa. And the other person I spoke to was Harold Jonker, who is a truck company owner who lives in the Niagara region, and he also came for the whole three weeks. Hmm. Okay, so we've got Lloyd and, and Harold. Uh, what brought them to Ottawa in the first place? So slightly different versions of the same thing. In in Lloyd's case, he and his wife, Dorothy, got vaccinated uh, because they wanted to be able to visit their grandchildren in the U.S. He expressed some hesitancy or concern about about the vaccines, but but they did it. But he said it was sort of a principal thing. He didn't like hearing the stories. The way he put it was that these frontline workers were turned from heroes into enemies, um, that we had kind of lionized these people. And then all of a sudden we were sort of as a society mad at them or, or his perception was that they were being punished for making a decision not to get vaccinated. And, and what about Harold? Why did he go to Ottawa? Now, Harold, it was a little bit different. Um, His dad is in his early 70s and had a number of health problems. And Harold says when COVID first came around, his family said to his dad, you know, you better be careful. You have these other health concerns. You got to watch it. And there was one day where he and his wife drove two hours to go visit and they were planning to sit on the lawn while his dad sat on the porch. And at the end of the visit, he said his dad turned to him and said, well, when are the kids coming to visit? And he said it the way that people tell you things that are stuck in their heads, right? And that are kind of stuck in their chests. He said, my dad said to me, I'm 73. I know where I'm going. I need to see my grandkids. And in Harold's telling, he says, that was the moment I realized there's something wrong here. He is deeply suspicious of the vaccines and would not get vaccinated himself. And he seemed to me a little bit more invested in kind of the broader, what you might think of as sort of the belief system that animates a lot of people who participated in the convoy. What, what, what do we mean by belief? belief yeah, system? so there's sort of a, like, it's kind of this constellation of things that connect. So he believes that the, the COVID pandemic was sort of overblown. In Harold's mind, 
he eventually arrived at a spot where he decided none of that had to happen, that COVID wasn't that bad, that the vaccines weren't really the safe solution they were held up as, and that basically he and his dad and his family and everyone had paid too much and it should just stop. Now, I think there's another way. And he and I had a really good conversation. It wasn't adversarial. We talked for an hour and a half. It was really helpful and and illuminating to kind of Mm -hmm. get to a place of understanding. And I said to him, you know, you know, I had a pretty rough few years, too. And I had a lot of those moments I hated. But in my mind, the place I've arrived at is sometimes that's just how life is. And sometimes terrible things happen that we kind of just have to muscle through. And I said, am I understanding right that for you, kind of the real point is that none of it should have happened, none of it had to happen. And he said, yeah. And I think that's a really, that seemed to me like a really significant kind of dividing point in the way you might decide to see the last few years. Yeah. I don't think I'd be amiss in in assuming that some people probably don't have a lot of sympathy for for how some of these convoy protesters um, conducted themselves for those few weeks while they were in Ottawa. Uh, but, But why is it important to understand these motivations that we're talking about, the motivations behind the convoy uh, in this way? Um, I, I guess I'm, I guess what I'm asking really is like, is why bother trying to understand this side of things? Well, to me, it means that what happened last year is is not really gone. Uh, you know, it's it's gone off the streets of Ottawa. That particular manifestation of it has dissipated, you know, by force. It was people were forced out of Ottawa, they were forced back to their cities, but a lot of the underlying factors that led to it, I don't think have really lessened at all. I feel like what is at the core of some of the convoy thinking or much of the convoy thinking is the idea that somehow the last 3 years or 2 years at this time last year happened only to them. And I think it's necessary to take a step back and realize that everyone's had a really brutal few years and had to give up a bunch of things they didn't want to give up or that cost them a lot, you know, emotionally or life-wise or whatever, and that there is real suffering attached to that. And like, I just would never argue for listening or understanding in only one direction because that would be incredibly cheap and myopic. Mm -hmm. Um, And and I think, I don't know if there's a likelihood of of listening or understanding on on either side of this debate, if you will, but... uh, I, I don't know. There, there's just a real, as I said, like sort of a real kind of blinkered narcissism at the core of some of this to me. Okay, so so let's talk about these underlying factors then, uh, because uh, I, I guess I wonder from the experts you talk to, I wonder how we can understand these factors. So what what are the main things at play here? So the two the two researchers who've been looking at this are are Jared Wesley and Feo Snegovsky at the University of Alberta. And there's three big sort of things that probably underlied all this or that, that certainly underlied all this. One is status loss, one is what we would call tribalism, and one is the loss of deference or or the lack of respect for democratic norms. Okay, so so the first one is status loss. Uh, mm-hmm. What is meant by that? So status loss is the feeling that your way of life or your livelihood is being threatened by forces beyond your control. What's key there is that it's a difference between sort of either how you felt your life used to be. Did you feel like it was easier to like make a living or be accepted in society 10 years ago? Or is your life different from how you expected it to be? Or do you feel like things aren't going as well for you as they did for your parents? It sort of puts you into a place of zero-sum thinking where if anyone else get something, that means you've lost something, or in order for you to gain something, it means something has to be taken away from someone else. It kind of induces a feeling of scarcity, like you feel like what what is available to you is threatened in some way. Okay. Okay. So it sounds like kind of a, a loss of control almost there. Very much. It's very much about a loss of control. That's exactly right. Yeah. 
And and so then the second thing you mentioned was was tribalism. And, and so mm-hmm. what what do we mean by tribalism and, and how does that factor into all of this? So tribalism, I think, is sort of the part two of, of status loss. And this is often fed by elites, which can be media commentators, leaders of political parties, sort of influencers, if you will, who tell people who feel threatened in some way, you know what, you're right. You are getting the short end of the stick. You are not getting your due. And you know what? It's not your fault. It's someone else's. And now I'm going to helpfully point out to you whose fault it is. And I think it's closely tied to that feeling of who should you blame for your feeling that you're not getting your due in life. And I'm thinking about those F. Trudeau flags that were all over the place. It sounds like Trudeau was was certainly one of the, the figures, I guess, that, that was pointed to in this way. Yeah. When I talked to the professors, they both sort of said in different ways, you know, if you went to a central casting office, you couldn't get someone better in terms of fueling feelings of Western alienation, which is kind of where the the roots of a lot of the convoy came from and uh, sort of class warfare than this, you know, sort of urbane leader who is 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 kind of seen as very woke I'm putting that in quotes who is the son of the architect of the national energy program like like if you wanted to inspire a 2 minutes hate from a certain segment of society like you really couldn't do better than putting a poster of Justin Trudeau on a wall We'll be right back All right. And then lastly, you mentioned uh, that some people have stopped respecting some some basic democratic norms, essentially. What's an example of that? One of the things the researchers I talked to talked about was the decline of what's called loser's consent, which means that if there's an election in Canada, say, and your party or your candidate doesn't win, there was typically a norm that we, we thought of as loser's consent, which is that you would accept the outcome. Like you would basically not be a sore loser in political terms. And you would think, OK, my guy didn't win, but this guy did. He's in charge. You know, we'll try again another day. But we're seeing more and more a rise of people kind of pushing back against that, the idea of delegitimizing elections or thinking that someone who wins is not worthy of your respect or that they don't legitimately govern you. Yeah. And I'm thinking, too, of course, during the convoy, there was a, a you know, a sub movement of, of, of trying to overthrow the government, essentially, and, and, and exactly, you know, instate other people to be in charge. That that sounds like it kind of ties in ties into what you're saying here. There was that sense of sort of you don't you're not the boss of me like like I don't accept the rules you're laying down because I don't accept your leadership as being legitimate. You know, in 2019, we saw a similar movement, the the United yep. We Roll movement come into Ottawa, uh, but it only rolled in with about 100 truckers compared to the tens of thousands of people that that showed up in, in 2022. So what was the spark that was happening last year to make that so different? It was COVID and it was COVID in a couple of different ways. My personal pet theory uh, for a long time has been that we haven't paid enough attention to how much the grinding stress of COVID has affected people individually and then how that adds up to affect public life. So for tens of thousands of people, it was being very, very angry in some way about a vaccine mandate and hitting the road to Ottawa. There's also um, a more pragmatic thing, which is that we were in the midst of an Omicron lockdown and a lot of people, it seems like particularly people who adhered to the convoy movement, we're out of work. They couldn't work because things were shut down. And so you're in a position where why not road trip it to Ottawa? You're not losing hours. You have nowhere else to be. Like, it's just a very practical thing. Um, I'm struggling not to use the cliche perfect storm, but it, it does feel like that. Like there were there were a lot of things kind of conspiring at once where there were these underlying factors and then you have the accelerant and poof, up it goes. But but couldn't couldn't this still happen again? Like 
people probably heard about the uh, 2023 convoy potentially being organized in Winnipeg for February. Uh, that was called off. But but isn't it possible that that we could see another convoy style protest gain widespread support in the future? I think so, in the sense that a lot of the forces that made that happen last year have not really gone anywhere. And I'm not saying that literally you would have trucks coming to Ottawa again. But if you have a small segment of the population that feels disconnected, not heard, hard done by, if you have a media ecosystem that is feeding that notion for them, if you have politicians or sort of social media figures who are telling them that they are getting a raw deal and it's not fair and it's that person's fault over there... It's it's not hard to imagine how it would just need another animating effect. And so so what do we do about that? Like as a society, what do we do about that alienation that 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 underlies all of this? So one of the things that Professor Wesley suggested was this idea of um, on a political level, regional caucuses that are cross party, because right now in Canada, we have if if we're thinking about like sort of partisan politics, we have a real regional divide where um, the support for the conservatives is very Western. And so you kind of have regional divides mapping onto partisan divides, which is sort of a recipe for a lot of tension, where basically, if you know that the guy you're across from or the person you're across from today, you're going to have to see next week and the week after and the week after, you're less likely to write them off or do really hardball negotiations or sort of, you know, just kind of slough them off because you know you're going to have to meet with them again. And so basically he's arguing for a political and a social version of that where we have to cross paths with people and be in close proximity to people who are not like us. We have to get out of our bubbles the hope would be or the idea would be that that would filter up, filter down, that that if we're all kind of very um, encamped um, amongst people like us and sort of inclined to see the other team as the enemy, if you kind of break down those teams and mix them up, maybe you you kind of lessen some of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but some of it, too, this, this researcher, Professor Wesley, argues that basically we're not as polarized as we think we are. He has done lots of research where he asks people, for instance, and this is in Alberta, um, to plot themselves on a left-right political spectrum. And he says the bulk of people put themselves somewhere in the middle. They don't put themselves way out to the left or the right. They sort of see themselves as essentially centrist. People tell them they don't like conflict. They don't like politics as blood sport. They don't like everyone kind of trying to choke each other out and yell at each other. They actually like what he called boring stuff. They like compromise. They Mm. like politeness. So... It could be that sort of we're making the mistake of chasing kind of the empty calories of clickbait and rage and online viral memes when that's not actually what people want. But we've sort of set up this kind of strange economy where if you're um, a political leader or, you know, you're producing YouTube videos or whatever, you think that the way to people's hearts and minds is to generate drama and like behave like you're on some kind of unhinged reality show when that's not really what most people want. But the question is, how do you reset that cycle? Like, how do you get out of that sort of chicken and egg dilemma? Yeah, that's an interesting it's an interesting way to think about it. Yeah. Uh, I'd like to just finish off here, Shannon, by by coming back to to Lloyd and and Harold. Did they tell you what what happened when they finished in Ottawa and they, they came back home? Yeah. So when Lloyd came back home, he belongs to a large church and he had been getting messages while he was in Ottawa, sort of from people in his church and in his community who were kind of horrified that he was there. Um, And he's very kind of polite and kindly about it. He says, I don't blame them. Like, I know what they were seeing on the mainstream media. And it was horrible. His argument would be that that was not the reality that he saw. 
But then when he came back home, he said sort of the reception from his church, he wasn't sure if they were going to kick him out. It was sort of a mix of people hugging him and saying, thank you. You know, you did good work. You were out there fighting for us and people who were still kind of appalled that he was there. He did say that in the year since, the temperature on everything has kind of turned down a little bit. The, the edges have sort of softened. One of the things that Lloyd told me that really stuck out to me is when he heard the public inquiry announced, he sent them a long letter. But I said to him, what did you want them to know? Like, what did you tell them in your letter? And he said that it was the most important three weeks of my life. For Harold, he when he left Ottawa, uh, he said there were several kilometers of people lined up along the road in their vehicles, um, honking and waving. He saw his kids on the roof of his van. He was sort of greeted by this like hero's ticker tape parade. But on the other hand, he had been a part-time counselor on the West Lincoln Town Council, and they ended up voting for an investigation into his participation in the convoy, found him in breach of the code of conduct, and they suspended him without pay for 30 days and ordered him to account for and repay the monetary value of the food he'd received as gifts. He has now filed a lawsuit against them. Um, but he also ran for re-election in October and finished third or fourth in his ward. And he was one of a number of pro-convoy uh, anti-vaccine candidates in the Niagara region who were defeated, um, who had been very public about their positioning. So I suppose there's a bit of a statement uh, to be made there. Yeah. And so a year later, Lloyd and Harold, do, do they feel differently about the things that that led them to to be there and participate in the convoy? They both said they had no interest in doing the kind of reunion tour. And they both said the same thing. Sort of our battle is won. The vaccine mandates have been dropped. People have their freedoms back from pandemic measures. What would be the point? I've always thought that was kind of interesting because the protest, the convoy was always sort of destined to succeed, right? Nobody was going to live with pandemic measures forever, but also destined to extinction. So the convoy protesters could claim success and claim that they made this happen, even though it's maybe, you know, correlation instead of causation. But also it's kind of taken the wind out of their sails. Like what reason would you have to do another one of those at this moment? Shannon, this was a, a really interesting conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Thanks for having me. It was great. That's it for today. I'm Manika Raman-Wilms. Our producers are Madeline White, Cheryl Sutherland, and Rachel Levy-McLaughlin. David Crosby edits the show. Kasia Mihailovich is our senior producer, and Angela Pachenza is our executive editor. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you next week.